Hello and welcome to episode 192 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. In Los Angeles, I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Vienna, Virginia is Ben Olson. Ben, you excited for another big show? I I am excited on some level. I don't know if the... <laughs> I was trying to feel what I was actually feeling. Um, it's more <laughs> of a neutral feeling, I guess. Should I be excited? Yeah, see, that's that's a question that you ask. See, what the que- purpose of the question is for you to just say, yeah, I'm super excited. <laughs> it's, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm no. trying radical honesty for the next few minutes. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. I mean, that's a good way to it's a good way to live. It's a, it's a hassle. I mean, it it causes some problems, but it's also uh you don't have to remember all your web of lies and deceit if you just, you know, basically tell the truth yeah. all the time. Yeah, that's true. It's very peaceful in that way. <laughs> yeah. Um we're going to do an LSAT fundamental uh about understanding your scores. We have an email from a listener uh with an interesting um Offer from Concordia Law School, which is in Boise, Idaho. Boise. Uh, basically offering a full ride for anybody who can get a 160. Okay. And then a question about uh, Concordia's 509 and, and some, some stuff. I think we'll, it'll be pretty interesting to dig into. Sure. We're going to talk about a logic game from June 2007. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we probably have some other stuff that we'll touch along the way. First... We got some upcoming dates for you. This show will air on May 13th, the June 3rd LSAT. Everybody knows about. Uh, if you haven't already registered for that, it's too late. June 4th is the last day to register for the July LSAT. Remember that July LSAT is going to be the transition test to digital, and they're letting you take that test and see your score before you decide whether you want to cancel your score. And it's a one-time only special deal, and um, there's a lot of reasons for everybody to go and take that July LSAT. Um, June 27th, the June scores will be released by email. That means that uh, if you're taking the June LSAT, basically the next day you have to decide whether you want to sign up for the July LSAT. I'm thinking most people who take June should also just be registered for July. Do you agree, Ben? Yeah. And in fact, uh, that seems to be happening for my students. Last night, I asked how many people were planning to take the June test. And I think everybody in class except two or three raised their hand. And then I said, how about July? And same deal. Almost the whole class just raised their hand. So I was like, okay. Yeah. yeah I mean, even if you knock it out of the park in June, you should take it in July. So. Yeah, you might hit back-to-back home runs. And the second one might be even deeper. Yep. And you just, if it's even one point better, you keep it. So yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, it's, you burn $190, which blows, but you know, it's, uh, we're talking about $190,000 worth of law school tuition potentially. So, Mm -hmm. you know, take, take it again. I do think I was talking to somebody last night, just like a consultation and she was really worried about, uh, she had already taken the LSAT three times and she was really worried about taking it a fourth. And she was like, well, I absolutely can't take it a fifth time. So, you know, the fourth time is going to be my last for sure. And I'm like, nah, because especially now with this thing going on, I feel like lots of people are taking it many, many times, right? Like next cycle, the application people are going to, it's going to be very common for applicants to have taken it three times or even more. And cancellations are now going to be really no big deal because everybody who takes the July test is going to cancel it. Not everybody, but a lot of people who take the July test are going to cancel it. Uh, anyway, that's July 15th is the July LSAT. So June 3rd, July 15th. And, uh, I would imagine that most people, who are prepping now should be taking both of those. You can always email the show help at thinking LSAT.com. We love giving, uh, getting your questions, comments, send us a selfie when you do that. And we will uh, put your face on our website. Remember you can listen to the show all sorts of ways, Spotify, Apple podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, thinking LSAT.com. Leave us a review on iTunes. If you get a chance, please, uh, really helps people find the show ready to do this. Uh, fundamental. Let's do it. So the purpose of this is to help students understand their practice test and official results. Is that right? Yeah. All right. So what do you want to tell people? Well, I would say that when most people start studying for the LSAT, they are 
primarily focused on their overall score. So their 120 to 180 score. And I feel like it's a very imprecise measure of your progress and what what actually is happening as you start to study for the test and as you continue to study for the test and as you finish studying for the test. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, we are supremely concerned about what score you end up with. We want you to get the best score that you can get. But uh, looking at that score as you run this marathon, so to speak, is not very useful. It's in some ways kind of like running a marathon and trying to look at the finish line as opposed to just looking at the next hill that you have to get over. And so in any case, what will happen is people will take a practice test, they'll take a diagnostic test, maybe it's their first test that they've ever taken, and they get, say, a 148, right? And then the next week they take a test and they get a 152. And you get a whole range of responses about that too. Sometimes people are ecstatic that they went up four points. Sometimes people email me and they're like, hey, uh, I got a 148 on my first practice test and I've been studying in your class for the last two weeks and then I just took a test on Saturday and I only got a 152. And it's sort of like, <laughs> uh, yeah, like there's all sorts of different expectations out there about what is going to happen when you take a practice test and how your scores are going to look. And so the goal with this fundamental is to hopefully dispel them all. And my goal would be people to get people to disconnect from that because it's not uncommon for someone to get a 148 and then get a 152 and then get a 146. And then it's just like, oh my gosh, all this work that I've been doing is useless. I clearly am not making any progress. Those are the kinds of comments I hear. And it's like, whether or not you're making progress has so much more to do with which questions you got wrong, why you got them wrong, not only why you got a bunch of them wrong, but maybe, but specifically, why did you get individual questions wrong? There are people who get a question wrong and it's like, oh, yeah, I was thinking that because it was a strengthening question, I wanted a stronger answer. And I thought many would make this answer stronger, but now I know that many does not mean most. And it reflects a decent understanding of the test and what's going on. And then there are other people who get a question wrong and they're just like, well, I thought, you know, pigs were the same as farm animals. And you're like, um, hmm, yeah, that's kind of different. And they could just be totally off or they could have a false contrapositive or something. So two different people getting the same question wrong for very different reasons may result in the same score, but reflect a much different level of progress. And one person is going to be much closer to raising their score and moving the ball forward than someone else. And so I really try to discourage people from thinking about the score, which I think they then take as a kind of like, they kind of look at me suspiciously, They're like, wait a sec, are you trying to sell me, you know, smoke here or something? Like, what's what's going on? Uh, you're saying, don't worry about my score? Like, that's right. that's weird. You just want to get out of trying to help me improve or something. I don't know. I mean, I don't think they go that far, but I would kind of view that suspiciously. But I'm trying to get them to focus on the things that they're doing and the things that they're learning And kind of put their head down and focus on that and have faith that as you continue to do that, your score will eventually go up. But your obsession with the score just in general kind of gets in people's way. Yeah, I agree. I have a lot of things to say. I mean, going along with the last thing you just said is that my class is about actual understanding of the underlying content, not like bullshit tips and tricks mm-hmm. and gimmicky, you know, nonsense. Yeah. So if you missed a question and I explain it to you and you feel like it makes perfect sense, like you can see why the wrong answer was wrong and what, what attracted you to it and 
why you shouldn't, you know, why you picked it, but, but how you're going to avoid that next time. Yeah. And if you understand why the right answer is right, and if you can see, oh, okay, I see what makes this the, the one right answer. And I can kind of see why I didn't pick it the first time, but now I know that I, I, you know, makes sense and hopefully that'll register next time. That's what learning feels like. And if you are having that experience more often than not, when I'm explaining stuff to you in class or when you're reviewing on your own, when you're watching videos, when you're reading explanations, whatever it is you're doing, if you feel like you're learning and getting it and basically following along, basically understanding, then you are improving your skills, even if the results of any one or two or three practice tests don't necessarily show it. Yeah. Um, I also want to say that you said sometimes people go from 148 to 152 and they're like, why am I not improving more? (laughs) Yeah. And I want to say that one point a week would be solid improvement. Two points a week is great. Yeah. Like if you make two points a week and you just keep doing that, that's awesome. Yeah. Because the scale, people don't recognize this, but the scale on the LSAT only goes from 120 to 180. So there's only 60 points that are even in the scale. Uh, Not only that, but 130, you know, if you score below 130, that puts you in like the bottom 5%, maybe, maybe 10%. Yeah. Um, So what I'm saying is not very many people score lower than 130, even on a very first practice test. Yeah. And if you score 170 or above, you're now in the top two or 3% of all test takers. Yeah. And so that means that like 80% at least of, of all scores ever are between 130 and 170. And so the scale, really the effective scale is 40 points. Yep. Um, now, of course, some people can and do reach 170, and you know, I see people score 175 every year, every cycle, and I love working with people like that. Um, and I'm not saying you can't get above 170. I'm just saying the scale is very compressed, and every single point you improve is moving you past hundreds or even thousands of other applicants. Yeah. And so people need to change their mindset. I mean, they just like, they expect like, oh, I'm going to improve 20 points in in two weeks. It's like, nah, (laughs) maybe if we added a zero to the the scores. Yeah. (laughs) But the, I don't, for whatever reason, they have a weird scoring scale that only goes from 120 to 180. And so it makes it so that every single point on the LSAT is precious. And if you're improving at all, that's just amazing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, The other thing I want to say is that everybody has a bell curve of possible outcomes on the day Uh, on, on any particular practice test. There is a bell curve of possible outcomes that you can achieve with any given level of proficiency. And there's just going to be randomness in your results. Sometimes at the end of the section, when you bubble in guesses, sometimes you get lucky and get a whole bunch of them, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And sometimes at the end of the section, if you run out of time and you bubble in guesses, sometimes you get unlucky and you don't get any of them right. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with your ability. That has 100% to do with just luck and random variation. Similarly, you're going to narrow certain questions down to a 50-50. And you're going to know that one of those is, has to be the answer. You just know that the other three can't be the answer. You know that the correct answer has to be one of these two. Yeah. And... I think you're going to get slightly more than 50% or maybe a lot more than 50% of those perceived 50 fifties. Correct. Yeah. Um, you have to learn to trust your instincts. Your gut will get better and better, uh, over time, but some days you're going to just kind of lose a lot of those coin flips Mm -hmm. and some days you're going to win a lot of those coin flips. And on the days where you win all the coin flips, you don't really notice that you did it. You just think and you got the, it. You're like, oh, yeah, I you just think it. you got it right. Yeah, you don't even review that question, probably, or maybe, you know? Yeah. 
And on, on days where you got unlucky and lost a whole bunch of those coin flips, it's easy to be like, oh, I'm an idiot. I suck. Yeah. I always narrow it down to two and pick the wrong one. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so there, there is going to be a bell curve of outcomes. And the purpose of your LSAT prep is not really to narrow that bell curve. People are always talking about consistency, but I just don't know that consistency is really a thing. Instead, I think you should be concentrating on moving that entire bell curve up. Yeah. So that your best performances are better, your average performances are better, and your worst performances are better. But there's always going to be variation within that curve. Until you get to the very top of the scale, you know, like people do peg it at like above 175. Mm -hmm. At that point, I can see the, the bell curve starting to narrow. Once you start scoring literally 180 sometimes, then the bell curve starts to narrow because there's just no, there's no more upside. Sure. But a student who's going to score 160, you're going to have variation in your results. And, you know, then some people say, but Nathan, I scored 160 on my last four tests in a row. What are you talking about? And it's like, yeah, well, you might have got kind of lucky on the first 160, then improved your skills, then had kind of an average performance and got a 160, maybe another 160, kept improving your skills. Then you might have got kind of unlucky and scored 160. And so you can look, you can, you can think that you're on a plateau when in fact your skills are improving and it's just random fluctuations in the data that are making it look like there are these short term trends and plateaus and whatever else. Yeah. I think it's also normal to put a lot of weight on that first test. I had a student just a few weeks ago who had gotten, I think like somewhere in the mid one fifties, one fifty four or something like that on her first test and of the 20 questions that she didn't, 20 some odd questions that she didn't get to, and she just guessed randomly, she got something like half of them right. It was insane. I, I, I was questioning her about it for a little while. I'm like, wait, did you do these questions after the test was over? Like ha half of them correct is, is quite unlikely, but it appears to have happened here. And she was like, no, no, I didn't. I just bubbled these answers in. And I was like, well, that pushed up your initial diagnostic score quite a bit. Ten, you know, of 20 points, I wouldn't expect you to get 10 of them right or 12 of them right or whatever it was. I'd expect you to get like four. Right. But just by random guessing. But in any case, yeah. she. Um, it was interesting because... She said, yeah, I don't know exactly how I got them right. I mean, I just filled in those answers, and that's how it worked out. But when she wasn't able to get those lucky guesses <laughs> on subsequent practice tests, there was this kind of sense of like, well, I don't know what's going on, but my score isn't going up as quickly as I would have expected. And I was trying to say, yeah, but like this first score is arbitrarily high or at least unusually high for what you were really capable of. And I think there's a sense it's like, well, okay, I don't know what you're saying. Like you're overcomplicating it. This is the score I ended up with without any work. Yeah. And here's the score I have now. And it doesn't look like things have changed that much. And it's like, yeah. I can understand that's frustrating but you're kind of approaching this as if like you had just gone into the official test that that would somehow happen now. Like you'd somehow get half of the questions that you just guess on correct. And I don't think that's likely to happen. I hope it does for you. But if you want to recreate that initial test, you're, you're going to have to do that. So anyway, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a shame. I, people really need to, study more like math and economics and statistics and stuff. I think, you know, people, people who took like, I mean, I was an economics major mm -hmm. 
And people who, like I had to take a decent amount of, not like high level calculus or anything, but like I had to take a decent amount of statistics and and I've like studied, you know, a decent amount of like basic probability things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so it makes me much more comfortable with just sort of the idea that there is randomness and that that randomness doesn't have any meaning at all. Like if you told me, Hey, look at this, Nathan. See these twenty get the twenty guesses. Um, on average, you should have gotten four of those right, but you actually got ten right. So that's sort of like plus six above expectation. Yeah. <laughs> so your initial diagnostic was sort of unfairly high. I would understand that. I would I would totally accept that. I would be like, oh yeah, okay. Like it doesn't mean I'm dumb. It just means that like my initial diagnostic was kind of lucky. Yeah. It's not a great initial (laughs) diagnostic. No, it's not a great baseline. I mean, and I guess that's why people need to think about one thing you can do is you can just focus on moving averages, right? So instead of looking at one practice test result, you can look at the average of your last five practice test results. Mm -hmm. You can get lucky on one test or, or maybe a couple tests, but Eventually, if you start looking at a bigger sample of practice tests, you're going to smooth out all that variance. Yeah. We could show that really easily, right? With like a a scatter plot or like a a dot chart or line graph of, of a a student's practice test scores. Mm -hmm. It's going to be like spiky, right? It'd be going nuts all over the place. But if you smooth that out to a moving average curve, where it's like, instead of paying attention to each data point, we're just looking at the average of the last five data points. Yeah. You're going to be looking at a much smoother curve and that smoother curve is a much better representation of your actual level than any one data point. Yeah. A couple other things that might be helpful to understand when looking at a practice test score that's lower than what you were hoping or expecting include people underestimate how much being sick or distracted or having the wrong Mm. mindset as they go into a test can drop their score. We've talked a lot about how when people go take the official test, they either try to do everything perfectly and slow way down and double check stupid things that they already know are right. And triple check wrong answers to like make sure that it's not the right answer. Like, yeah, it's really, really wrong. Oh yeah. And they're like getting ready to give a lecture on it and well, talk themselves into picking it because they <laughs> <laughs> come up with some convoluted rationale for it. Yeah. And forget about the answer that they want that they were going to pick, you know, which is correct. Yeah. So that, that mindset of either perfectionism in terms of correctness or the perfectionism in terms of finishing the section, can really rake you over the coals, right? And so that can drop your score pretty quickly, pretty fast. Uh, Being sick and not focused, uh, you know, this test is so much about the devil in the details. And as you're reading through two sentences, how many times do we hear people recap sentences and you're just like, "Uh, you just left out like the middle part of that sentence, which is crucial to understanding how it sucks and so you, your your interpretation of that sentence is just whoosh, glossing right over things. And it's like that happens more often when people are sick or unfocused or, you know, constantly blowing their nose or things like that. I mean, you really need to go into the test and be focused and say, OK, I'm here to answer these questions and this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to not rush, but I'm also not going to just sit on my butt and so in any case, when you get a bad score, you want to think about the, your mindset, your health, distractions in the room that you let get the better of you, right? Someone's tapping their pencil on the table. Uh, you, you need to learn to ignore those things. But if it's the first time you encounter them and I have students come up to me afterward and say, oh, I felt good about this test, except the person next to me kept tap, p- tapping their pencil and I just it's so annoying and they're frustrated and sometimes they're asking me to like ask the class not to do that. And it's like, um, I'm glad you encountered that because you're probably going to encounter that on test day and you need to let yeah. go of that stuff. And that kind of plays into mindset and that can affect all the questions as you go through the section. So those are some things I would think about when you're looking at a score. Don't Not to make excuses for yourself, but to really dig in and try to understand why your score might have dropped. 
The other thing, yeah, two more. Go ahead. Well, I just wanted to say another thing that that can happen is, let's say you got logic games as your first section and you kind of stumbled on the games, mm-hmm. and then you know you stumbled on the games. Yeah, and then that that like infect you're just your mindset. You kind of get rattled, right? Yep. And your your mindset for the day gets gets ruined, and you you keep having these like you know, you're just sort of perseverating on, Oh shit, I really sucked on those games. Like when am I ever going to get these games? But now you're doing logical reasoning yeah, or reading comp yeah, and you're still thinking about how you choked on the games. Yeah. Well, when that happens, then, I mean, that's a way that your whole day can just kind of, you know, have this cascade failure. Yeah. And so did, did that happen? Is that the, the cause of this one bad result? Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Say what you're going to say. Oh, now I'm just perseverating on perseverate. So <laughs> I knew you were going to say something about that. This is the second time we've had this conversation on the show. The other thing I wanted to say was, um, and maybe we can start to kind of wrap, wrap it up here, but you really need to ask your teacher better questions. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a bad result, it's fine, whatever, mark it down in your study history, whatever, but then dig in to the questions you've missed and stop asking your teacher, why is my score not going up? Yeah. And instead, ask your teacher about a question that you struggled with. Yeah, and here are some example questions just to get the ball rolling. How could I have set this game up differently? Could I have used worlds to set up this game? Um, how? What kind of flaws are? should I have noticed <laughs> In this argument, I noticed this one. Is this the only flaw? Here's why. What questions can I ask myself in necessary assumption questions? What questions can I ask myself when I'm looking at the answer choices in flaw questions? These are the kinds of things that are concrete and have to do with the way you think and act about the test. Those are the kinds of questions that you want to ask. I really struggled to eliminate D here. Why, why is D not necessary? Yeah. Or why is D not a must be true? Yep. Or what did they mean? I mean, I struggled to understand this argument. Can you, what, what even are they trying to conclude here? Sure. Start there. What's the main conclusion? Yeah. Yeah. Get very specific and concrete. And even after you, you find out what the main conclusion is, then ask yourself or your teacher or whatever, why? Why is that considered the main conclusion as opposed to the first sentence? What are the concrete reasons? So that you can look at this in other questions and do it again. Really understand it. You got to get to a point where you can explain why you got something wrong to someone else in a way that they can understand it. Why did you suck on your workout today, Ben? (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad you asked. I haven't totally figured that out. But I was sick for like a week and a half, and so then I came back, and today I worked out, and it was half. I did half the pull-ups and half the push-ups that I did last time I worked. This did the same workout. It was a little demoralizing, but I'm chalking it up to just getting back into things, and I'm glad that I did it even though it sucked. And I'm just going to keep going. Yeah, I mean, you're going to... Okay, so you're acknowledging you've been sick. You've been out of it for a little while. Mm-hmm. Was there anything else, like any m- mindset things? or? I think the mindset, actually, now that you're asking about it, probably did play a role into it. I think because I've been sick, it kind of gave me an excuse to not work as hard. Mm. But at the same time, I went into it expecting to be right where I left off. And so that was demoralizing. I didn't even think about that. Like my expectation was I'm going to do 100 pull-ups and 200 push-ups. And I literally did 50 and 100, 50 pull-ups and 50 push-ups. And I thought, I think (laughs) because it was so much harder than I expected, it's almost like I gave up, right? So maybe going into it with less, like a lower expectation and then actually hitting that and then being like, great, I can do more now instead of going in with, I should have just realized that I wasn't going to be able to do what I did right before I got sick. That's probably would have been helpful. Sorry, this is a little 
digression here, but <laughs> it does help to like go through and think like what don't just come up with a reason. I just came up with a reason. I'm like, oh, I'm sick. Okay. Yeah, but there's more to it. it maybe it was my expectation going into it. Sounds like you also might have got demoralized halfway through, like you sucked on the pull-ups, and then so that might have affected your push-ups. Yeah, I was alternating back and forth between them, so the, oh, they're, okay. they're kind of tied together. But yeah, no, I definitely got, I was surprised by how tired I was so early on. So then I was like scaling back my goal rapidly and just deteriorated <laughs> into half. <laughs> Maybe you need to start looking at your moving average number of pull-ups and push-ups. <laughs> Instead of my best ever. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I think people do that all the time, too, on the test. They go, I got a, I got a 168 once. Now I have to get a 168 or better, or I'm doing, right. or this is sucky, and this is a waste of time. Right. And that's kind of how I was feeling, too. Yeah, they don't, they don't recognize downside variance. Like, they think downside variance means that they're terrible, they suck now. And upside variants, they also don't recognize. And they just think like, oh, yeah, that's me now. Like, I'm a 168 now. Yeah. Even though the, my highest previous score was a 162. Sure. And now I got a 168. And, like, I'm not saying don't be excited. I'm just saying, okay, but what's the moving average of your last five? Yeah. <laughs> because that 168 could very well be just kind of catching a piece of that upside variance. By the way, this whole thing is an argument for taking the LSAT multiple times because there is variance in your record and there's, and there's going to be variance in your record. And if you take it multiple times, you give yourself the best chance to get one of those kind of lucky results on your official record. And law schools, unfortunately, are only going to look at your highest score. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, because it is, it, I get, well, is it dumb? I don't know. I'd have to think about that a little bit. <laughs> But the truth is that, like, people get, you know, they take it one time and get lucky. Well, that's good for them because the law schools are only going to care about that one lucky result. Yeah. Yeah. Should we wrap up the fundamental, do you think? Or you have I, something? Uh, <laughs> I'll let you have the final word. Oh, the final word. Well, <clears throat> it's kind of a long word. Maybe I should just drop it. But I did want to point out that some of this variance also comes from the test itself in the sense that, let's say you're better at games than you are at reading comprehension. Well, if you get a test that's hard, has hard games and easy reading comp, that's going to play to your strengths and you're going to do better on that test than a test that has hard reading comp and easier games because you're not going to be able to really use your skills in the game section and you aren't as good at reading comp and now you're getting crushed because the reading comp is even harder. And so you can see variance just because Although the overall test is about the same difficulty, some tests will play to your strengths and some tests will play to your weaknesses. And just recognizing that, I guess what I'm trying to do is explain why one more reason why there's variance, why there's things that change, even though the test's overall difficulty is roughly the same from test to test. So Yeah. Anyways, Great. bottom line, expect change and don't stress about it just constantly put your head down and focus on learning from your mistakes beautiful you ready to do pearls versus turds let's do it all right uh, this is the segment of the show where we get a, a piece of received lsat wisdom and we assess whether we think it's uh, a pearl a, a, a good tip or a turd which is a bad tip so here we go uh, idea from a listener this, this by the way, this section will eventually be renamed just turds. <laughs> yeah, the uh, total record so far, we found one pearl, 13 turds, and eight ties. Mm -hmm. um, so here's an idea from a listener. Quote, I might have a pearl I'd like to share. At least one that helps me when I start to get frustrated, especially when I score 10 points lower on a practice exam than when I started cold. It's hard for that to not be super discouraging. So my advice to myself is to think of the LSAT as learning an entirely new language. There are days when I'm confident with my vocab and bombing through conjugations, and days where everything feels like an irregular verb or exception to the rule that I've not studied up on. And the LSAT, like a new language, has nuances and patterns that can only be really understood through time 
patience, and practice. Thanks for the laughs and all the advice. Ashley with an asterisk, which I think means that, oh wait, that's a quotation mark. Sorry. So yes, Ashley. Thanks, Ashley. What do you think? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> there is some truth in here. I can see students who, on the one hand, learn some principle or concept <laughs> or logical rule, and then they confidently apply it to a logical reasoning question, get that question wrong, and they're like, what the heck? I just learned this, and I thought that's why B is correct. And you're like, yeah, but B also says this, which now kind of undercuts that <laughs> idea that you just learned. And you're right. Like, in most cases, that's an important thing to keep note of. But did you also notice this part of the answer? And and you can feel like you're not making progress. But in reality, that person has, because they're building up those rules and how to read and understand these terms. They just missed an exception. Like a new language has nuances and patterns that can only be really understood through time, patience, and practice, or the exception to the rule that she talks about. So, yeah, I think at the very least, just recognizing that there's more to learn, but that you have faith that you will put all the puzzle pieces together eventually is a good mindset. Yeah. Getting frustrated is not ever going to be useful. I don't think so. Anything that helps you to not be discouraged, Ashley, I think is great. That said, I don't know that I can give this tip uh, full endorsement as a pearl, there's one bit of it that I just, I, I don't like the metaphor of the LSAT is an entirely new language. I thought you might take issue with that. <laughs> you want to <laughs> go ahead and say what I'm about to say? Well, I'm just guessing, but the reality is, is that all these words that we're learning how to interpret, we're learning how to interpret correctly. So it's not really a new language. It's a precise use of our language. Yeah, it's the English language. Yeah. And these words have meaning. And they sometimes, you know, they're using secondary definitions of words. But the wrong answers are wrong. (laughs) And the right answers are right. And I don't like the idea of students thinking about the LSAT as an entirely new language because then I feel like you're going to get into this weird, like, oh, I'm not doing normal, common sense, easy things now. Instead, I'm doing the LSAT, which is its own weird universe, its own new weird LSAT language. Nah, uh uh-uh. No. This is the language of reason. This is, you know, <laughs> it does, it really makes sense. Like it's, it's it, now there's convoluted shit and you're going to have to really dig in, but it, it does make sense. And it's not a new language. It's the English language. It's a new language. Yeah. Hmm. I'm glad that Ashley takes some comfort in this. Uh, and, Absolutely. Just don't get discouraged. There's no point, you know, don't listen to everything we just said in our fundamental about how to interpret your scores. One data point is one data point. Who gives a shit? Yeah. I think the thing really to do Ashley is to just start reviewing your mistakes one at a time and ask better questions of yourself and your study partner and your LSAT teacher Uh, just, you know, Hey, this question right here, what's up with this question right here? What mistake did I make and how do I avoid making that mistake next time? I like the fact though, that you are using some mental trick to get yourself to keep going. Cause that's what's really going to matter in the end. If you keep showing up, keep working hard on trying to understand, you will understand. Yep. Absolutely. Um, Give it a tie. Tie.
Sounds good. You want to move on to the next one? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Oh, uh, email help at thinkinglsat.com if you have a uh, potential pearl versus turd for us. Thanks. Do you want me to read this? Yeah, go for it. Hey, guys. In episode 141, you mentioned Concordia University's full tuition scholarship offer for applicants who score a 160 or greater. Greater. Hmm. The email didn't include a matrix, just that offer, so I thought I'd send along the scholarship grid they sent to me. Cool. I like how sure your email is, by the way. Amanda. Here's the grid. So the grid basically lays out in the... Uh, vertical column LSAT scores. The top one is a 160. And then you have GPA scores or GPA numbers. Uh, you can have above a 3.49, between a 3 and a 3.49, and be- below a 3. But what's significant here, I think, is that you will get a renewable scholarship each year um, without GPA or ranking stipulations if you apply with a 160 or higher for any GPA. So whether your GPA is below 3.0, above 3.0, or above 3.49, it doesn't matter. You're going to get a full tuition scholarship that is supposedly unconditional uh, at Concordia Law School. Now, if you get a lower lower LSAT or, or something like that, then your GPA would affect the amount of money you get but they're still saying, hey, we're going to give you this much money if you hit this LSAT score and this GPA range. Yep. Okay. Want to read the Yeah, so Amanda continues. Below. I checked their 509, and it says that zero students received full tuition in 2017-2018. Any thoughts? Okay, so they made an offer that they know no one will accept. That's interesting. Uh, what are your, let's pull up this 509. Yeah. So I've got the 509 up already. I'll talk about it a little bit. Um, their class, uh, last year total in first year class, 59 people, 50 of them full-time, nine of them part-time. So they admitted a very small, uh, incoming class and their LSAT and GPA ranges are super low. I mean, They've got a their twenty fifth percentile LSAT is one forty four. Their seventy fifth percentile LSAT is a one fifty one. I mean, it's almost an unconscionably low range, right? Like they, these people. Well, I don't know how it is to practice law in Idaho. Maybe it's easy to pass the Idaho bar. Maybe these are perfect Idaho lawyers. <laughs> but like, if this was a California law school, it, oh. An LSAT, an LSAT range like that is going to, to translate to an extremely low California bar passage rate. Yeah. So the bar passage rates are gone now from this great report, right? Correct. Yeah. Which is just ridiculous that they don't have to publish bar passage. Uh, they should have to publish Idaho bar passage rate <laughs> on this. Their undergraduate GPA range goes from a 2.8 to a 3.5. Um, so that's a much wider range. Uh, 3.5 undergraduate GPA is not horrible. Um, but 151 75th percentile LSAT is pretty terrible. Uh, so yeah, when I look down at the scholarship matrix, mm-hmm. first of all, we can't tell what their tuition is because it's got per credit instead of per semester, which is weird. I guess we can guess that there's 15 credits per semester, though, and it's about $1,000 per credit, so it's probably $15,000 a semester. That sounds about right for a school like this, $30,000 a year. Yeah. Um, I mean, not that that's actually fair. It's just that that's probably what a school like this would be charging. Sure. It's still obviously way too high for like what you actually get. Um, it does say that the school does not award scholarships that may be reduced or eliminated or eliminated based on law school academic performance other than failure to maintain good academic standing. And so they do not have to complete a conditional scholarship retention chart. So I'm willing to believe them that they do not take away any of these scholarships. For 2017-2018, they had 124 students enrolled. Of those, 100% of them received some kind of a grant. Which is half, let's see, less than half is 90. Wow. Yeah. 
73% of them got less than half, and then 27% got half to full tuition with no one getting an actual full tuition scholarship. But, but that doesn't, I mean, I don't know. It's possible that this 160 and above full ride thing is brand new at Concordia. Yeah. It's also possible that nobody with a 160 or above even applied to this school. Yeah, well, if your 75th percentile is 151, wow, they really just, they're like, they probably put this matrix together and like, yeah, sure, 160. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, make full tuition, whatever. Yeah, (laughs) like, (laughs) nobody will ever, no one would do this. Like, yeah, I mean, one, probably not that many people want to move to Boise or, you know, there's just not that many people in Idaho to begin with. Yeah. So not that many people want to stay in Boise, not that many people want to move to Boise, but if you think you would like to be in Boise and if you can score 160, I, Hey, go be a rock star at Concordia law school. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that, uh, brand is not going to really do anything for you outside of probably Boise. This is weird. Like these scores, these scores are, most of them are well above their 75th percentile. So I wonder how much of this is actually just marketing smoke and mirrors, right? They're just trying to make it look like, (laughs) oh, if you get a 151 to 153, you get $6,000. If you get 154 to 155, you get $7,000. 156. That's already above their 75th percentile. Yeah. This is like way above their 75th percentile, which means actually no one's going to apply with these maybe. Maybe some. Uh, I mean, obviously some. It's their 75th percentile, so some people are above it. But I'm just wondering, like, are these <laughs> – is this matrix actually ever used? Or or in practice, is is the highest scholarship they ever give only $7,000? And they're just putting in these other numbers to, like, make people feel like these kinds of people are applying to Concordia. Yeah, I don't know. I guess we will uh, see next year when their um, ABA 509 comes out. Yeah. Um, assuming they're still in business. You know, like they they have very low numbers and it's a very small program and it's possible that just nobody's even applying to this school. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Anyway, interesting. So wait, what was your question? Yeah. Oh, thoughts. Well, her question was just like, what do we think about the fact that they didn't have any 100% scholarships on the 509? So that's my answer is that, well, maybe this is a new program. And also maybe nobody applied to the school with a 160 or higher. I mean, they only had 279 applications last year. Um, it's possible that, I mean, and with their 151, 75th percentile LSAT, I don't know. Huh. Maybe they got a big donation and they're they're trying to like make a big splash this next cycle by giving a whole bunch of scholarships. I mean, that's the game anyway, right? Like that's how people that's how schools attract more talented applicants is by giving scholarships. Everything is a negotiation. Everything is a sale. Yeah. <laughs> yep. All right. Uh thanks Amanda. Appreciate that. You want to uh do we have time to dive into this game? I feel like the game would take long, don't you think? Potentially. Potentially. Why don't we just start it and see how far we get? <laughs> right. Once you start something. So this is June 2007, Section 1, the third logic game. If you just Google June 2007 LSAT, this uh, test will pop right up. It's free. And this is the game about a cruise line scheduling seven week-long voyages for the ship Freedom. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're not going to have time to like do all the questions here, but I think that's also okay because if we just make general remarks about how to set it up, yeah, yeah, I, I think that that might be enough to cover it. If people are confused, they can always just email help at thinkinglsat.com and we can work our way through the questions if people really want us to do that. Sure. I'll read the game quick um, and, and then we'll talk about how to set it up. So we got seven 
week-long voyages for the ship Freedom. Each voyage will occur in exactly one of the first seven weeks of the season, weeks one through seven. Okay. Each voyage will be to exactly one of four destinations. Those destinations are G, J, M, and T. Each destination will be scheduled for at least one of the weeks. Okay, so we have to use at least one G, one J, one M, and one T. Okay. Obviously, we have to do some multiples, though, because there's seven total destinations. Yep. Um, or seven weeks in the schedule. The following conditions apply to the schedule. J will not be its destination in week four. T will be its destination in week seven. Those are very straightforward rules. Yep. I tend to do not uh, rules below the diagram and obviously just put T right into slot seven. Yeah. I wouldn't be actually writing anything yet because I like to read the whole thing before I really make any marks on my page. Um, there will be two voyages to M, exactly two voyages to M. Okay. And at least one voyage to G will occur in some week between those two voyages. Okay. G will be the destination in the week preceding any voyage it makes to Jamaica. Hmm. That's the trick here. When people totally fuck up this game, that's where they fuck it up. Last rule, no destination will be scheduled for consecutive weeks. So the boat's going to keep moving. Okay. Great. Um, now I'm gonna now I'm gonna write a just a very quick setup. Um, I imagine you're doing the same. Yep. We have the seven slots. Yep. I got seven spots. I got a not J under the fourth one. I've got a T in the seventh one. I did not write down the numbers. Sometimes I look at people's page and on a game like this, they've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven written down about twelve times. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, hey, there's only seven spots there. You know, the first one's one and the last one's seven. <laughs> the middle yeah. one's four. I mean, that should be kind of obvious. Yeah. I just, I, would, I don't think I would be writing numbers on this game. Maybe at a very low level I would. I tend to write one and seven because then it becomes mentally easy for me to move in from either side. Okay. And the one is probably redundant, but I've just... That's what I do. Um, the seven is more to remind myself that, yeah, that last slot is seven or six or eight or whatever it is, so that when I see the slots next to it, I instantly know that they are five, four, et cetera, right? So in this game, since the last slot is seven, it's very easy for me to see that the slot right next to it is six, even though I haven't written a number next to it. Um, if I don't have any numbers written down, I guess I'm more inclined to make a mistake at those those last slots because they're further away from the beginning if I'm not remembering how many slots are in the game. Okay. Mm -hmm. I've got an M before G before M. I've also got my list of variables is G, J, M, T, and I have a 2, like a superscript 2 next to the M yep. or above the M rather. Sure. And then my M before G before M, I have M1 before G before M2. Okay, yep. Because there has to be at least one G between the two M's. Sure. This GJ rule is really the, the tricky part, right? Yep. So I have that as G and J are next to each other with G before J. And then I have... An arrow that goes out of the J into the G looks okay. kind of like an arc. And what I'm saying to myself is, if I have J, then I better have G immediately before it. But it doesn't say that anything about what happens if I have G. If I have G, I might have J, but I don't have to. Okay. And then I guess we get to make one inference based on that rule. Yes. It, well, we can. first, mm -hmm. it's key to to note that J is the trigger on that rule, not G. Yes. Right. I've got written down if J then GJ. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. So like a conditional rule: if J then arrow GJ. Yep. To make it clear that J is the trigger, not G. Sure. Uh, the rule, by the way, says Guadalupe will be its destination in the week preceding any voyage it makes to J. 
So that translates again to if you have J, then you have to have G immediately before it, but it doesn't say what has to happen if you have G. So the inference from here is that J cannot go first because if it does, then G has to be immediately before it, which is not possible. So we can write not J under the first slot, and we already have not J under the fourth slot. And then the error that people make is they put no G on the third slot. Aha. Because yes. they're confusing sufficient for necessary, right? They're yep. like, oh, well, if that can't be J, then this can't be G, obviously, because GJ. Yep. But that's just not understanding the rule. That's confusing sufficient for necessary. The sufficient yes. condition is J. When we do yep. have J, we have to have G immediately preceding. If we don't have J, then the rule just doesn't even apply. That is correct. Cool. I'm going to make one more inference based on the rule that you can't have the same thing consecutive weeks. Okay. Which is very simple, but hey, baby steps are good. Uh, we can't have T in week six if we have T in week seven. Sure. All right. Would you do anything else with this game, Ben, or do you think you're? Do you think you'd move on to the questions there? Well, I would ask myself whether or not I could do worlds, and then decide on whether or not to do them. So here I'm looking at J, for example, because blocks tend to be nice things and J necessitates G. So if you have J, you have to have G. That's a block of two. And we know that J can't be in one and it can't be in four. So in my head, I'm thinking to myself, well, J could be in two and G would have to be immediately before that. And that wouldn't satisfy the MGM rule. So then the MGM stuff would have to come after that J in slot two and G in slot one. But yep. as I move down the list, I'm feeling like, geez, there's a lot of possibilities. Like if J is in three, then G has to be in two. And that G could be the G that comes between the two M's or it might not be. So I don't know how helpful that is. And J could be in five and J could be in six. Yeah. So Ben, I know you, you have to wrap it up right yeah, around here. Okay. So what I, what I propose is why don't we leave this as homework for people to work on a little bit? This is the third game from the June 2007 LSAT. Sure. And one thing that I do with my classes all the time these days is I encourage people to try the same game in different ways. Yep. So I think worlds based on J could absolutely work. There's only four worlds for J. Yep. If you put J in, you get to put GJ in. So yeah. there's four templates and you automatically know two things. I just don't think that can hurt you. It's going to take you two seconds to, well, not two seconds. It's going to take you 20 seconds to write these four templates just put J in the four spots where J can go, then put G in its required spot in front of J. Yep. If you do that, you've, you know, I guess there's still the possibility of having another J potentially, but you'd have to think about whether that would actually work given the fact that you have to have two M's. Yeah. So four worlds based on J, I think it could turn out to be awesome potentially. Now you might have to split one or more of those four templates. Yeah. But that's totally fine. If you're not going to do that, you could consider worlds based on M, but I think there's lots of different ways that the M's might be able to work out. Mm -hmm. Or you just basically go through the questions, you know, you do the list question first, number 11, then you do all the if questions. You're going to have to do a lot of work for those if questions. If you didn't do any worlds. Sure. But just try it both ways and uh, maybe email the show, help at thinkinglsat.com, and let us know what you thought was better. And um, I think we can come back, Ben, and uh, maybe finish up this discussion next time with uh, here's how it went if you made worlds. Like, this is what you got to discover. We can work through those ourselves, and we can talk about what would happen, like how you would split those worlds. Cause I think that's really useful for people to understand is like you make these four templates and then, yeah, okay. You might have to do a little more world building inside those templates. Yeah. Maybe we should do this in two weeks and hope that, uh, some people get the chance to try it out and tell us about their experience so that we can respond okay. to those concerns. Yeah, that sounds good. So yeah. we'll skip a week, um, on this game, but then we'll come back in two weeks 
and uh, finish up our discussion of, so this is June 2007, freely available online, um, section one, Logic Games, the third Logic Game, the one about the uh, cruise ship freedom. Join our uh, Facebook group if you're into Facebook, it's Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook, there's 1,300 some members there discussing the show and discussing random law school stuff. Uh, give the Thinking LSAT Facebook page a like if you're going to do that. We are at Thinking LSAT on Instagram, uh, at Thinking LSAT, at NFox, at Olson Benjamin on Twitter. You can go to strategyprep.com to learn about all Ben's stuff, including live courses in D.C. You can go to foxlsat.com to learn about all my stuff, including live classes in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Obviously, go to lsatdemon.com to uh, prepare to uh, prep for the LSAT online. It's awesome. People are addicted to it. You can do LSAT prep everywhere, and there's a seven-day free trial. Uh, Check it out. Let us know what you think. Yeah. That was show number 192. Thanks, all y'all, for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. 